The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 388 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is law and lore of autonomy and mental health disabilities. Now, law, just to explain the sounds, LAW is what is enforced by the federal and state courts in the US and in Canada by the provincial, territorial and federal courts. Law, that's L-O-R-E, includes legends and urban legends that we are encouraged to believe. Now, autonomy for persons as individuals means liberty to follow one's will, personal freedom, and is generally a good principle. But autonomy can create challenges, and just three examples. Challenge for family caregivers, caring for individuals, that's family members, living with mental illness or brain damage. And the family caregivers have noticed something that alarms them. It's an alert. And so they try to alert healthcare professionals to what may be warnings of very real problems and serious emergencies, such as dangerous behaviors on, part, on the part of their family members. Another challenge for families caring for loved ones, always with mental illness or brain damage, is because paternalism, that's the kind of word that um, isn't now considered uh, very appropriate. Uh, Paternalism is acting in a way like that of a father towards his children. Um, And so the the word is kind of out of date, if not actually uh, forbidden, Um, even though it may enable families in principle to protect their loved ones who are unable to make decisions in their own best interests. Challenges for law and medical practice arise in deciding when an individual with mental illness or brain damage is unable to make decisions in the individual's own best interests, all of which are topic law and lore of autonomy and mental health disabilities is so important for family caregivers and their family members. To discuss it, our guest is Mani Supkoff. Mani is the Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, a registered charity that defends the constitutional rights and freedoms of Canadians in the courts of law and public opinion. She's a fourth-generation Torontonian, but she spent nine years in the U.S. where she graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the Johns Hopkins University in 1997 and received her law degree from Stanford University in 2000. Before moving back to Toronto, she worked as a lawyer with the Institute for Justice, where she litigated economic liberty and property rights cases. She then went on to spend over a decade as a national newspaper columnist and editor for the National Post and managing editor for blogs at the Huffington Post Canada magazine blog. Her writing currently appears in the National Post and Regulation magazine. She's also a frequent commentator on national news broadcasts for CTV News and the CBC. So welcome to the show, Marnie. Oh, thanks very much. 
Great. Let's go. First question for you. Please tell us more about your work as a newspaper columnist and of any about any experience you, you have with family caregiving. Marnie? Sure. Um, well, I was a newspaper columnist for, as you said, about a decade, and uh, I tend to be interested in in well subjects where law or talk about what kind of rights and individual rights we have intersect with decisions um, that do impact family. And I think that once I had kids, my oldest, uh, my oldest is eight, I think that started, um, suddenly I was even much more interested in, in the way that all of these sorts of decisions um, and who makes them um, and how you balance a lot of these decision-making uh, choices with with actually respecting people's autonomy including kids and parents and um, all of that has uh, I, I would say led me to be looking a little bit more at some of the issues that you're probably talking about on this show um, in both my newspaper columns and of course in my own life as well as um, I, I suppose my main role as a caregiver is to my three kids but I also have parents who are, are getting older and I am an only kid and I have found that over the last few years, um, my role has sort of started to change a little bit, you know, not not wholly certainly as, as some people's is, but um, I feel like I'm becoming a little bit slightly more of a caregiver in, in that respect as well. Right. Now, please tell us more about your work as Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Money. Sure. Well, the Canadian Constitution Foundation, um, thanks for the great description. Um, I, as executive director, my role is to make sure, first of all, that people understand what we do, which, as you said, is to uh, uh, protect the constitutional rights of Canadians. Um, but also it is to educate people as well and to actually get into court and litigate based on those rights. So as executive director, I do spend a lot of time thinking about autonomy and whether the government is getting in the way. And I think you probably probably first contacted me um, on, on an issue uh, where we were talking about similar things because, of course, when you're talking about rights and you're talking about individual rights, you are basically usually assuming um, a certain degree of competency and an ability to make decisions um, rationally for yourself. And, you know, sometimes that ability can be compromised or might not be at its height um, or, or just might be sort of absent temporarily or longer, depending on what's going on medically. Um, what might be going on uh, as far as mental illness um, and what might be going on as far as brain damage. So, um, you know, for us, usually we focus very heavily on the autonomy side of things, and that's that's kind of our role out there. Um, but we are, we are quite aware that um, it is a balance, and it's, it's not always an easy question. Right. Now, I want you to tell us, please, more about your work as a lawyer with the Institute for Justice. But one just quick question about it. Uh, as, as I understand it, the Institute for Justice is in the U.S. and not Canada. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. The Institute for Justice is based in Washington, D.C., um, but they do have state chapters all throughout the U.S. And, yeah, they, in, in some ways their, sim their mandate or their mission is, is quite similar to the Canadian Constitution Foundations, but they are much, much bigger than, <laughs> than we are, which is, I suppose, typical of the, the U.S. version of, of Canadian stuff. Um, but it's a great organization, and in many ways I view my time there as a really good training ground for the work that I'm doing now in Canada. Um, we're certainly different countries with different issues, different laws, um, but ultimately the goal at both organizations really was to make sure that if individuals weren't being given the chance to be in control of their own destinies, to be able to actually live freely and um, earn an honest living, things things that we, we generally take for granted, but if government was getting in the way, then our role um, both at uh, IJ in the U.S. and at the CCF here in Canada is, is to try and step in and help. Now, tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you talk about the government getting in the way. Please explain. <laughs> sure. Um, well, there are there are certainly different different ways in which government can get in the way. I can tell you that one example might be, um, you know, here in in Canada at um, at the CCF, one of the cases that that we're currently working on is we're representing a retired steel worker in New Brunswick who, um, like many New Brunswickers, drove to Quebec to buy some some a few cases of beer, several cases of beer, and some spirits to take back home because alcohol prices are. Are, are about half 
what they are in New Brunswick and Quebec. So many New Brunswickers cross the border, um, but there's a very antiquated law in New Brunswick that also just happens to be very valuable for New Brunswick's treasury. And it's sort of a protectionist law that says you can't bring over more than one bottle of wine uh, or spirits from another province and take it back into New Brunswick. So um, that's one case where we're representing this this gentleman, Gerard Como, um, who really was hurting nobody and went and made a legal purchase in one province and then, you know, was legally entitled to drink the alcohol at home and his other, but was pulled over by the RCMP and uh, charged. And um, we are now challenging the constitutionality of uh, New Brunswick's law that prevents you from actually bringing liquor from one province to another. And it's really more in that case, it's sort of more about... Um, the, the other, it's not only about that particular instance, but it's also just about the constitutionality of actually government stepping in and, and deciding um, that you can't actually trade freely between provinces. Right. Yeah, let's go back to autonomy. Has, have you in the Canadian Constitution Foundation actually received any questions, concerns about autonomy, anything relating to autonomy, and if you have, have you taken any of those in any direction of the court? Money? Well, I mean, in some ways, I think that every case that we do actually does relate to autonomy. Um, you know, we have, um, we, we've taken on civil forfeiture cases. We have a, a case um, where we're representing a couple named Bruce and Donna Montague, and what they were, in their case, what they what they had done was they they were protesting um, um, changes to the firearms laws. And so they, they purposely let some licenses expire. Um, Bruce was charged for that and um, actually served some jail time, um, which, you know, we can actually, is debatable in itself, I'd say. But at this point, what happened after that was that the province of Ontario used their civil forfeiture laws to say, you know, despite the fact that this guy hurt nobody with his crimes of letting licenses expire, despite the fact that it was a paper crime and he actually did serve some time in jail, they decided that they're going to take his house um, and sell it for cash. And then the attorney general will, uh, keeps the money under Ontario's civil forfeiture laws. So for us, I mean, that's another example to me of, of autonomy when it's saying because someone someone really wants to be able to politically protest and the government is stepping in and saying, no, well, that's not good for you and that's not good for the rest of society. Um, so we're actually going to not only prevent you from doing that, but actually punish you by uh, taking your home, <laughs> which is a pretty extreme reaction, we think. Um, and I suppose perhaps one of the, the most direct examples we've got is the healthcare case that we're involved in in British Columbia, where we are trying to, um, we, British Columbians are, are several patients we have uh, who are, uh, it's a constitutional challenge to British Columbia's healthcare laws, which say that if you are a British Columbian and you are languishing on a healthcare wait list in, in the province, you, you can't go and get private care. Um, within the province, you're sort of stuck on that public waiting list. And if you want to get off the waiting list, your only choice is to leave the country. So for us, that's that's another really good um, issue of autonomy where you're saying to people, the government really is saying to people, it's for the best if you don't get to make your own health care choices. We think it's for the best that we, we keep you sort of locked into this public system um, for better or worse. And we think we're in a better position to make that decision than you are. That's really taking somebody's right to determine their own future, make their own decisions away from them, isn't it? Yes, I think it really is. I mean, I think that's probably one of the most obvious cases where it is. And it's sort of, um, you know, it depends how it's worded, but it's, it's basically saying either that you don't know what's best for you or that what's best for you is just not best for everybody. And we're therefore going to use the law to prevent you from um, making that choice, which is really quite surprising in many ways, because we have in, in certain ways as a society, we are so um, we really sort of talk the autonomy talk. We usually speak as though we would not let government get in the way of personal choices, particularly as they relate to our body or our health or our things that we're going to do as far as um, healthcare treatments. And yet this is pretty much the norm in almost every province across the country. Right. Now we've, 
come to the time where we have to take the break. This is where I always say we have to pay the rent. So we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Athley, and my guest is Marnie Sukkoff. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Adoption changes a family forever, for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial, and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Marnie Sukkoff. Our topic is law and lore of autonomy and mental health disabilities. Marnie, please, now let's talk about autonomy and the challenges it creates for families and family caregivers caring for family members with mental illness or or brain damage. Now, we've already mentioned some of them in outline and we've discussed a little bit about the general principles, but now we go into a bit more detail. So first question for you, Marnie, is this. What is autonomy actually as it relates to mental illness or brain damage? And what do you see as its law, that is L-O-R-E. Marnie? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And in some ways when I, uh, you know, when I hear it, I almost think, I feel like we should be asking a philosopher, (laughs) not necessarily a a lawyer slash journalist. But um, I suppose, you know, when you talk about the autonomy in the context of mental health or brain damage, you still are talking about autonomy in the same way that you would in any other context, which is, you know, really assuming that you want to allow an individual to, to, to the greatest extent possible, to be making their own choices, um, not to be sort of, as you, you, you've mentioned the word paternalism, I, I was thinking of the word patronized, or um, you, you don't want to take over decision making for someone, an adult, um, someone who can make their own decisions, even if someone is making what you feel are sort of bad or um, not the best decisions. It's very dangerous, I think, to get into the the habit or the realm or certainly the legal realm of, of allowing others to step in and and prevent someone from making their own choices and determining their own lives. But of course, it becomes much more complicated when you bring in mental illness or brain damage because you could have a situation where somebody really is making choices that are not only sort of um, potentially not the best ones, not ones everyone would agree with, but could actually really be placing themselves um in, in sort of imminent danger uh, of, of, of real physical harm. And I think that's the, 
that's the challenge, right? Drawing that line between, you know, where where are you actually going to step in legally? At what point does something go from just being a um, a bad choice to being a, a situation where somebody just is not competent to to make decisions for themselves? Who gets to decide that? Um, what do you do if you're a family member who really does care about that person and uh, really wants the best for them, but legally for, for good reasons, um, there's so many protections that, that prevent you from stepping in. So, yeah, I mean, I think in the lore, I mean, the lore of it really depends who you ask. You know, there's a whole um, sort of patient movement where you would have people who call themselves survivors of psychiatric treatment who I think would, would have very different things to say um, about uh, autonomy for those with mental illness than you would with uh, family members. Who, and, and I think both have have valid points of view and have probably been through really um, difficult situations on both sides. But, um, you know, ultimately that's, that's the question. What do you do? What, how are you going to determine what, what, what autonomy means if you have someone where there really are legitimate questions about whether they're, they're competent and whether they're actually going to cause really great harm to themselves if left to their own devices? Right. Now, this is a follow-on question, but it's this. What do you see as the most challenging of the challenges created by autonomy for families of individuals with mental illness or brain damage? And what I'm thinking of there is not only the individuals making decisions that are not in their own best interests, but making decisions which could actually be harmful, um, even lethal in some circumstances, for other people. So what are the challenges for the families in those kinds of circumstances where they're worried that there may be a danger signal. Marnie? Right. Well, yeah, no, you're, that's a very good point that, yeah, you could, you're right. So it's, so there's, there's this whole other realm that you're right. I wasn't even thinking about, which is, but is very relevant where you're not just talking about someone harming themselves. You're talking about someone harming other people, maybe many other people, maybe strangers, maybe someone else. But um, regardless, uh, the challenges I think for family are that it's very difficult. Um, it's difficult to intervene. Uh, you, you have a challenge if, if you have a family member who is seeing a psychiatrist or a doctor. I mean, there's a really strong um, and useful pr- privilege between a patient and um, a doctor that's, that says that, you know, what passes between them isn't shared with others and isn't shared with family members. And um, there, as I said, good reasons for that. But it can be very difficult if you are then a family member who, who wants to sort of put up a red flag and say to some, get somebody to listen and say, I think something bad could, could actually be happening. You sometimes run into um, doctors who are not comfortable listening. And I think that's unfortunate and not necessarily um, inevitable because really, as I understand it anyway, a doctor's responsibility is not to share information with family members, but it's it doesn't prevent a doctor from listening to a family member. And yet I have heard certainly um, uh, many, many uh, personal tales where people where family members have gone to, to physicians and tried to raise the alarm and and have have just not had physicians who are just not comfortable even even listening so I mean that's the difficulty I think the other difficulty is what do you do as a family member do you do you actually want to call law enforcement do you want to if you can't get anywhere with a doctor um, it's a very difficult and painful thing to actually you know, call the police on somebody who is a family member or even to try to get them forcibly confined um, if that's where you think you have to go. It's just really emotionally an extremely difficult place because your loyalties are to this person who doesn't at that point in time think you have their best interests at heart. And in some ways, whatever action you take, is probably going to end up in the person you love or your family member then being in a pretty bad situation, however you think it would be in a that's a less bad situation than if they actually harm someone. Right. Now, it, I'm still sort of pushing the same theme for one one particular reason, and that is that often, relatively speaking, on this show, I've heard family caregivers describe a situation where, for example, their family member may be living with schizophrenia uh, of the kind that... Um, is produces these psychotic episodes which is where basically the voices in the head of the individual take over 
and start telling the individual with the condition what to do so that the brain is taken over by the pathology, if that that's a helpful way of describing it. Now, under those circumstances, then family caregivers may be seeing signs that it's the voices talking rather than the real thoughts of the individual. And then I've heard family caregivers say, it really, I really tried to get to whatever it is, the healthcare professional, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, um, it's not, and this is where one of them was very, very harsh. She said, it's not that I want to hear what they have to say. It's I want them to listen to me. Now, those are strong words. But what they reflect is what you've just been talking about, which is the very challenging situation where you are afraid as a family caregiver of what could happen, not because um, you're afraid not because of a broad feeling that's there in your mind all the time. It's because of what you're seeing in your family member. Now, I'm sorry for the lecture, but now the question. What about the challenges for family caregivers in situations like that? Marnie? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And, and, and it's a huge challenge and it's extremely frustrating because if you are in that situation and you can sort of, you know, you can see it happening and you know that there's not going to be a good outcome if uh, anything is not done, if there isn't some kind of intervention, but you're, you're pretty, you're, your options are very limited. Um, I, I suppose all I can say is that I think that it is problematic. I, I guess I, you've probably heard far more stories than I have, but the, the, the fewer stories that I have heard uh, yet still really echo what you're saying, which is that people are not trying to ask for um, information from doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists, which really is privileged. They really are just saying, please listen to me to, so I can tell you what I'm seeing. And I think, you know, some psychiatrists and psychologists are, are quite willing and, and um, you know, will take that as an objective sign from, you know, outside of what's happening. And I guess the important thing I, I think to emphasize is that that is not in any way a betrayal of, of their patient. Um, and the fact that there aren't more psychiatrists and psychologists um, who are willing to, to listen as opposed to divulge information they can't divulge may be... You know, it's possible it's, it, it, it shows a lack of understanding of what their actual uh, response, more, sort of moral and, and professional responsibilities are. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Perhaps it's, it's, um, it's just a, a reticence to, to get involved with anyone outside, to, to have a more messy situation. I don't know what the motivation is, but I think that um, if it were possible for that to be possibly, you know, perhaps clarified um, for for healthcare, those in the healthcare realm, um, you know, it might it might actually be a good thing. And, you know, family family members they they are going to be those who notice things first. I mean, they're gonna be the ones who are actually reporting what they see from from the outside. And if if this is if the family member has gone through this before, they probably will recognize the signs. Um, and certainly the the person who's going through it, that's the entire point. Like they don't recognize it. That's part of the illness. Um, so what can I say? It's it is a challenge and, and the best hope that I can see is if we could make that distinction a little bit more um, thoroughly emphasized for healthcare givers that, that there really is nothing wrong with listening and that you're not actually doing anything wrong or betraying anybody if you are listening to a family caregiver. If I could just quickly comment back, and what you just said is that profoundly important, if I may say so, Marnie, and that is that you're not in fact betraying your family member by saying, I want to warn of what could be warning signs of something very worrying. That, in effect, isn't, what, what can we say, destroying the family member's privacy, privacy of their personal health information. What it's doing is reacting to what seems to be a serious emergency. Now, first of all, very quickly, have I got you right? And secondly, if I have, I hope we can find a way to, 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 to press that message forward. But have I got you right? 
Well, I, I think I was talking more about the doctors themselves and saying that it's not a betrayal. The doctor is not betraying the patient by listening to a family member. But I think you're absolutely. I don't disagree at all with what you said. I, I, I wasn't. I wasn't sort of hitting that point, but I absolutely agree as well on the other side that I don't think it's a betrayal if you, because you are worried about might ha- what might happen to your family member. Um, I don't think it is in any way a betrayal uh, for you to approach uh, a healthcare provider and say, "I'm worried. This is what I'm." seeing um you know you you aren't a professional that's fine it's not your job to judge it you're just reporting objectively what you're taking a look at and you're doing it out of concern um for the person that you love and actually to try and prevent something worse happening and perhaps even to to sort of head things off before they get um to a much worse situation so yes i think that both sides both doctor and family member should in in that situation neither one should feel at all that they're um betraying the 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 patient, even if that patient might at that moment in time sort of see it as a betrayal, which, which I think yeah. speaks more to their inability to um, see beyond what's going on with them right then. Right. Now, once more, it's the tyranny of time. We have to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Marnie Sukkoff. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite. I'm Marnie Zubkoff. Our topic is Law and Lore of Autonomy and Mental Health Disabilities. Marnie, now let's talk about the challenges created for law and medical practice by autonomy when it's applicable to living individuals living with mental illness or brain damage and who may be unable to make decisions in their own best interests. So what do you see as the most challenging of the challenges created by autonomy for privacy laws? Marnie? Well, for privacy laws, I actually think that that I think the privacy aspect is really uh, important and in some ways difficult because we talk a lot about there's you know it's now almost a cliche to talk about the stigma of mental illness and we're trying to be much more open and um, people are sort of coming out and saying that I you know celebrities who who have dealt with mental illness and yet um, I do think that it's quite understandable and important that that people with mental illness or people in general would not want uh, the details of uh, their their illness to be made public and I don't think that's only um, I don't you know sometimes that's criticized as saying it's contributing to stigma but I, I think it's actually a very natural and healthy um, instinct which is you you know you don't necessarily want your your 
personal health records out there in any sense, but it's different um, with mental illness, I think, because I think there is an expectation realistically that you might be, your, your, your decisions and, and your work and everything that you do might be questioned far more than it would otherwise, even in cases where you actually are, um, you know, perfectly fine at that time. And, you know, as you know, mental illness is, you know, for, for, for some people, it can be um, something that's very difficult, but can be controlled extremely effectively with medication. And you could suffer from mental illness and yet be perfectly um, able to function quite well for, for many long periods, if not all of your life. And so to, I guess what I'm getting at is that I, I do think that, that privacy in that as, that realm and the realm of mental illness is extremely important. Um, you know, do you want a family member um, kind of keeping an eye on you? Uh, I can see why you might, you, you might not, but even more so, would you actually want this information to be public or uh, something that an employer could know about? Um, it's, it's tough. Sometimes an employer might have to know if you're going to talk about if you, if you need to take a medical leave, but um Otherwise, if not, then there are some pretty good reasons for not wanting to make that public. And yet, um, these are things that could impact your your job performance, and um, you you actually could run into a situation where you really are going going to have to let people know. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to um, actually do do the best thing for you and and sort of help you from keeping out of trouble. Right. Now, Marnie, I'm still pressing sort of the same sort of theme but with sort of variations around it so next question is what do you see as the most challenging of the challenges created by autonomy for laws focused on rights social justice and freedoms in other words the laws that you are interested in in your what i'll call main role money sure well i think generally what i see as the biggest challenge is situations where you have um, government, which I do think is is a more challenging proposition than simply, say, a family member who's sort of trying to intervene. When when you actually have a government um, law or regulation that is, is putting forward a blanket um, solution for everybody. And um, I do see that in the sort of in the realm of, of making choices about healthcare. Um, you know, I think it's a particularly difficult question when you want to talk about medication. Um, if you, you know, you used the example before of somebody with schizophrenia and, you know, you, you, we have see, you do see examples of people who, if they're on their medication, really seem to do quite well. And if they're off their medication, really do seem to do quite poorly in, in really dramatic fashion and, and you can see the pattern and even that patient can see the pattern and yet what you know if they don't want to stay on the medication um, for whatever reason because of the side effects or whatever whatever that choice is um, it that I think is the most difficult challenging uh, situation because uh, to force somebody to to stay on medication that they don't want to take, I think, really is a violation of autonomy. There's no getting around that, and it really is um, ultimately the state intervening because it's you know it's saying otherwise we're going to confine you against your will. And yet, um, I, I do understand why that happens, and it is really heartbreaking to see somebody who's who's doing well and probably could be okay if they would stay on their meds, and and that they just don't seem to be able to do it on their own. So I don't. I suppose, I guess I should be grateful that you didn't ask me for a solution, <laughs> but um, <laughs> as far as the most difficult question, I think for me, that's where it comes down to when you are looking at these sort of, um, these treatment orders or situations where it really does seem fairly straightforward that someone could be okay on medication, and yet you you can't discount the fact that, that the medication poses all kinds of, um, you know, challenges for that person, and it is their body, and they're the ones who have to live in it. Right. Let me amplify the difficulty. Um, there are circumstances in which an individual with schizophrenia, for example, is prescribed medications which make the individual feel better. They, they work. Problem then can arise when the individual feels that the medication is no longer required. That's one part one of the problem. And part two of the problem is that they then turn over to street drugs and develop addictions um, because they 
for whatever reason prefer the street drugs to the medications now how I'm not asking you for a solution how do you see that challenge in the bigger picture money well I mean that then you sort of get into another societal challenge which actually we haven't dealt with directly in in my work but it, it sort of follows along again when you talk about autonomy which which is that of whether whether street drugs themselves should be illegal um I think that there's broad agreement that they are damaging, you know, to varying degrees, but um, certainly that there are very good reasons why people have chosen to make them illegal because of the, the, the physical and mental damage that they can do. And yet, on the other hand, um, are we actually doing someone any good if you if you do have a person, I don't know what the, st- the statistics are, I don't know what percentage of people using street drugs have mental illness, but my guess would be that it's not a small one. Um, people who self-medicate and are we doing them any favors or society any favors by then making it um, a criminal offense that could land them in jail if they are caught Um, I don't think that's contributing at all to their treatment Um, we're also in a situation because because those drugs are are illegal then you sort of end up with people who are dealing with the black market dealing with a sort of just general more sketchy kind of um, situation and and getting themselves into a dangerous situation as far as trying to buy the drug. So um, all I would say, I, I suppose, is that I think you're, you're then, it, it's almost like we've gotten into a whole other question, which is that um, could we actually sort of mitigate some of this harm um, to everybody involved, but particularly those with mental illness, if, if we actually thought about maybe, um, you know, maybe actually legalizing some of some of the street drugs that we're talking about, not to encourage people to use them, but so that if you do actually have people who are using them, you could try to treat them rather than having them enter the criminal justice system, which is really probably the last place anyone's going to um, get better as, as, as far as mental health goes. Right. Last, last one in this segment is, what do you see as the most challenging of the challenges created by autonomy for medical practice? Well, for medical practice, I mean, I think there it, it, it is that if you are... I mean, if you're a doctor and you're watching someone make decisions that you think are the wrong ones that you actually think could put, you know, could actually cause physical harm or death, um, where do you draw the line as as a physician? And I think in some ways this is getting more complicated as we, we do get more sophisticated with um, not only psychiatric medications, but all kinds of medications. And we, we see these questions come up even with things like, cancer treatments, um, you know, at least with adults um, who are considered perfectly competent, we, we've generally kind of come to an agreement as uh, in society about when adults, that adults can refuse treatment. But we have way more questions about what the heck we're supposed to do when we're dealing with children um, or we're dealing with someone who, who we think isn't perfectly competent, if, you know, whether that be because of brain damage or mental illness, um, whatever it is you as a doctor might see someone making a decision that you think is actually going to kill them ultimately at, at its most dramatic. And I still, you know, I guess my my general sort of temperamental and um, uh, my tendency, also having done this kind of work for a lot of t- long time as far as individual rights goes, is, is really to err on the side of letting the person make their own decisions, even if those are bad decisions, um, even if those might cause them harm. But I do generally still preface that with the um, the assumption that that person is in a state to be able to make decent decisions. Now, that doesn't just mean are they a little bit depressed or, or are they a pessimist or, they, you know, uh, I think you, you, you should have a really broad uh, range to be able to make those decisions. But as a physician, on the other hand, I do think that if you're dealing with someone who just you, you can see is, is um, you know, is outright suicidal and perhaps, you know, having a psych- psychotic episode um, for you to be able to step in, I, I think is, does make sense. Um, and that should, that is your, I think that is the role of, of medical practitioners, but it's, it's not an easy thing. And, and of course you, you then sort of lay on top of that, the possibility of litigation, you know, as, as a medical practitioner, you're also always, you're trying to do the best thing for your patient. You're trying to do, um, you know, execute your professional responsibility and you're trying not to get sued as well which um it's it's not it's not an easy thing right absolutely right i mean just a very quick point of course is that if they turn to street drugs 
um, cocaine, for example, you know, the, the heroines and the rest of it, they're actually going to develop an addiction. I mean, that's pretty certain. And the addiction can be very, very harmful. You know, there's a high death rate associated with some of these opioids. And so the question, and I'm not, I, I don't have an answer to this, I'm not, not <laughs> going to ask it you, but the question is, what constitutes care under those kind of circumstances? What should the doctors do when they perceive a situation such as that? Because in certain ways, it's impossible. But on the other hand, it isn't right necessarily to let people drift into the hell of an addiction to cocaine when they're not able at times or permanently to make the decisions in their own best interest or to recognize decisions that might bring harm to others. But that's just a summary of the challenge, Marnie. It's not me knowing what the answer is. Now, at that point, we're going to take the break again. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Marnie Sukkoff. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Lots of people talk about publishing their work, but have no idea where to start. If you are one of these aspiring authors or know somebody who is, don't miss Publishing Today Radio with Athena Dean Holtz. Thought leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and in general, storytellers all want to get their messages in print, and that includes branding and marketing. Athena and her guests are here to answer your publishing questions and more. Tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Marnie Sukkoff. Our topic is law and law of autonomy and mental health disabilities. So, Marnie, what more would you like to do, you know, through your organization to advance understanding of autonomy's implications on the part of professions of law and medicine? In other words, what would you like them to better understand? Marnie? Um, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I, I think that what I my dream would be for them to better understand that they are not necessarily in conflict with each other as far as law and medicine go, um, because so often that's how they meet, um, you know, when we are talking about autonomy and, and, you know, full disclosure, that's what I do a lot of the time too, is I'm in, I'm in, you know, I'm, uh, my organization litigates and we're in court. Um, but it's not necessarily the only way that um, it has to happen. And, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about what I think might be one of the keys, which is that if doctors are sort of more aware of what would put them at risk legally and what wouldn't and what they are allowed to do, um, it actually, they, they do have more openness than they might think to do things like listen to family members um, and that there are there are ways to, it's not an easy thing as we also have established over this conversation, but 
there are ways that um, you can you can try to help a person without completely sacrificing their autonomy. Um, there are ways that you can um, you know sort of offer options that that um, don't necessarily involve completely taking away somebody's ability to make decisions. And then the brutal reality that I think we all have to recognize, and people like myself too, who are, are generally dealing with trying to, to um, sort of make sure that people's autonomy is not sacrificed, I think we've got to realize that there probably are points um, at which things are just so bad and somebody is so out of touch with reality that we are going to have to sacrifice some autonomy. And um, I think we have to be honest about that and just make sure that we're drawing the lines at, at a reasonable place. Right. Now, I'm going to use the word education. Um, I think that is a word I would use um, rather than advanced understanding because I'm wondering what you would like to see done by way of education for family caregivers regarding the question of autonomy and its implications. Marnie, just very quickly because time's running out on us. Yeah, well, I guess for family caregivers, maybe, um, you know, maybe the best place to start is, is from the other side and just, just knowing actually what, what it might be like for somebody if, um, you know, if they are, if there are cases where people have mental illness and are actually able to make decisions and are not currently, you know, in an episode where they, they can't. Um, and, and there are, you know, there are those very rare but unfortunate cases where people do try to take away their ability to make decisions. Um, and you can imagine how difficult and incredibly frustrating that is as well. And and so really for, for the family caregivers as well as for everyone else, part of this is just about learning to understand why those blockades are there that feel like they're just there to um, they're getting in the way of the family caregiver doing something useful and helpful and loving for their right. family member, but knowing why they're there would help. Right, great. Now, very last question. What's your message for family caregivers who, because they lack the power of substitute decision maker, encounter difficulties getting their alerts listened to by the medical profession? What's your message for them? Just quickly. Marnie? Well, I mean, my message for them, it's not a legal one, particularly, it's just a human one, which is just that don't give up and keep making noise. And, you know, doctors don't have to tell them anything, but they they can listen. And you don't have to be a substitute decision maker to be able to actually give information. So just keep keep trying and keep being loud. (laughs) Brilliant. Yes. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this very important episode, Marnie. Thank you very much for sharing everything with us, your insights, your opinions, and all success to you in your important work. And I hope that um, your organization will perhaps take a lead in some of the things that you've been mentioning. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners. Now, I also want to mention that with Family Caregivers Unite, we're starting a new research project called eQualitative Research, which this episode is part of. The idea is to find out what you, our listeners, think about important topics, such as the one we've just been listening to, and for you to share with us your experiences of healthcare. So please email me, listeners, to hear more or to get involved. And also, if you'd like to be a guest on my show, here's how to connect with me. Please email me at docg, D-O-C-G, at familycaregiversunite, all one word, dot org. Now, our next episode will be Trauma, Mental Health and Addictions, A Lifelong Healing Journey. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 